0: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Crime Circle is in session. Ladies and gentlemen, the Crime Circle, which I had the honour to found eighteen short months ago, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Mrs. Field of Fleming. Not at all,
1: Mr. Shillingham.
0: The Crime Circle, as I was saying, is greatly honoured this evening. Talented criminologists, though we six undoubtedly are, there's not one of us who can point to a more solid record of achievement in the field than our distinguished guest, Chief Inspector Moresby of Scotland Yard.
2: Mm. (laughs) Honoured to have you here, Chief Inspector. Mm. Honoured to be here, Sir Charles.
0: I honestly believe, Chief Inspector, without any disrespect to your own institution, that there's more solid criminological genius in this room than anywhere in the world. We are drawn from a variety of fields, the law, the theatre, literature, but we are united by an intense interest amounting to an obsession with criminology and the art of crime detection. I can assure you, Inspector Moresby, that entry to this charmed circle is far from easily achieved. Each of us has had to submit to, to the most rigorous tests, oral and written, Some of us have gained distinction in other fields, but as far as we are concerned, that counts as
1: nothing. If it did, I, for one, would certainly not be here. (laughs) (laughs) Mr.
0: Chitterwick. you may have few outside achievements to point to, but the thesis you submitted on the psychology
3: of the Poisoner was quite simply... Brilliant. Was it not, Mr. Bradley? Oh, major contribution to the subject, in my view, deserves to be published. That's
4: quite outstanding. (laughs) Oh, Mr. Um...
3: Bradley, Miss Damus,
0: I'm quite overwhelmed. So kind. This is all by way of introduction, to establish, as it were, our bona fides in the eyes of our distinguished guest. Because, by virtue of the powers conferred by you, the President of our circle is permitted to alter, at his discretion, the arrangements made for any meeting and... That is precisely what this evening I propose to do. The idea I've had will, I hope and believe, appeal to you. I venture to think it's both novel and enthralling. My idea is connected with Mr Graham Bendix. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or rather, with Mrs. Graham Bendix. You mean the murder? Of course. course. Ah. Mr. Bendix himself is personally known to one or two of us here. Indeed, his name has actually been canvassed as a possible member of this circle. Wait a minute. Uh, This idea of yours,
5: it's not connected with the fact that Mrs. Bendix's murderer hasn't yet been found. Got it
0: in one, Sir Charles. (laughs) Now, this is to go no further than this room but I have it on the highest authority that the police are calling a halt to active inquiries. There's always hope, of course, that some fresh facts will turn up, but without them, they've decided they can get no further. My proposal is that this club should take up the case where the authorities have left it.
3: Uh, form an <laughs> investigative team, do you mean? No.
0: No, Mr Bradley. My idea is that if each of us works quite independently of the others, there would be six chances of coming up with some result on my (laughs) word it's an interesting idea well mr Moresby has very kindly spent most of the afternoon examining the dossier at scotland yard so as to be sure of omitting nothing and i suggest we allow ourselves a week in which to form our theories verify our hypotheses and so on Hmm. i think it should be most interesting to see if we all arrive at the same result (laughs) (laughs) well are we agreed then Everybody's willing to try it out. Yes. I now have much pleasure in calling on Chief Inspector Moresby to give us the facts in what the press have dubbed the case of the poison chocolates.
2: <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, I, um, I can, of course, only give you the facts at present known to the police. It may be there are other facts to be unearthed that will throw more light on this mystery... Well, be that as it may. On the morning of Friday the 13th of September 1929, something over two months ago, Graham Bendix strolled into his club, The Rainbow, in Piccadilly. The time was just about half-past ten.
6: Morning, Mr Bendix. Good morning, Lockwood. Uh, Any letters? A couple, sir, I think. Uh, I'll get Sir Eustace Pennafathers as well while I'm at it. It's just on half-past ten. Won't be a moment, sir. Well, morning mm. Where's Lockwood? I'm gone for the mail yeah. uh, bit nippy it mm, is Here we are, sir Ah, oh, good morning, Sir Eustace mm. uh, This parcel's for you, sir And uh, two letters here for Mr Bendix oh. Thought I remembered seeing them mm, Thank you so. By God What's that? Damn cheek Never heard anything like it Lost all sense of decency These modern tradesmen I think they can do whatever they like What is it? Oh, just read that, Bendix. Hmm. Crossman and Sons, the chocolate people. Well, read on. <laughs> well,
7: at least they consider you a man of taste. Damn no. I don't know. They say here they sent you a box of chocolates gratis and with their compliments. Is that it?
6: Well, who the blazes do they think I am? Their pet guinea pig. Why well, damned if I'll try their blasted liqueur chocolate for them.
7: There's no real strings attached
6: they just appreciate any comments. I have a few comments they won't appreciate. (laughs) They think they're going to get free testimonials from me for their damn confectionery. They've another thing coming. I won't touch their blasted chocolates with a barge pole. I'm dumping them in the waste paper basket.
7: (laughs) Well, all this is an ill wind, as far as I'm concerned. It's reminding me I've got to get some chocolates myself. A debt of honour. My wife and I were at the theatre last night, That New Thriller at the Imperial. And I bet her a box of chocolates she wouldn't spot the villain by the end of the second act. She won. You must remember to get them. Oh, don't bother. You can have these. Well, no. better than
2: letting them go to waste, I suppose. Are you sure, Sir well,
6: take them. Take the whole damn lot. No. Letter and all. I'm glad to see the back of them.
2: Mr Bendix spent the rest of the morning aimlessly. Read the daily papers, glanced through the weeklies, and played up to a hundred at billiards. At about half-past twelve, he went back to lunch to his house in Eaton Square, taking the chocolates with him. Now, Mrs Bendix had told the servants she wouldn't be in to lunch that day, but her appointment had been cancelled, so she was at home. As they were sitting over their coffee after the meal, Bendix gave her the box of chocolates.
8: Comment? Kirash? Maraschino. Nothing else, apparently.
7: Mm.
8: I don't see anything new here, Graham. I bet they're just the same. I'll try this one. Have one?
7: No, thank you, dear. You know I never eat the things.
8: Well, you've got to have one of these as a penisman not buying me a proper box. Catch. Oh, Ugh. I was wrong. These are different. They're twenty times as strong.
7: And they're full of cure chocolates, that's no bad thing. Oh, by hey, Jove, I just think they are strong. They must have filled them with neat alcohol.
8: Oh, they wouldn't do that, surely. They really are very strong.
7: They almost burn.
8: I'm not sure whether I like them or not. And that Kirsch one tasted far too strongly of almonds. This may be better. We try a maraschino too.
7: If I must.
8: Mm. I can't tell any difference between this and the Kirsch. It's funny, I don't know whether I like them or not.
7: Well, I don't. My tongue feels quite numb. I think there's something wrong with them. I shouldn't eat any more if I were you.
8: Well, they're only an experiment, I suppose.
2: Mr Bendix remembers that conversation very clearly, because it was the last time he saw his wife alive. A few minutes later, he went out to keep an appointment in the city. He kept his appointment at three o'clock. Then he took a taxi back to his club for tea. What's the matter?
6: Bendix's been taken
2: poorly. The only indigestion, Sir Eustace. Mm. I'll be better
7: soon. If you ask me, it was those confounded chocolates you gave me. I thought there was something funny about them. Good God. Joan. I'd better go and ring my wife up. See if she's been taken like this too.
6: What's up, man? Lockwood. Lockwood. Come on, old fellow. What is it, to heaven, Sir Eustace? Good heavens, sir. He's unconscious. It looks to me as though he's dying, an attack of some sort. Well, don't stand there gawping, man. Fetch a doctor. Yes, of course, sir. At once, sir.
2: Before the doctor had arrived, a telephone message was received from an agitated butler trying to locate Mr Bendix, because his wife had been taken seriously ill. In fact, although the butler didn't know it, by the time he got through to the Rainbow Club, she was already dead. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I shan't keep you much longer with these preliminaries... As you know, Mr. Bendix did not die. Luckily for him, he'd eaten only two of the chocolates, as against his wife, seven. It was only later, when the chocolates had been sent for analysis, that it was identified as nitrobenzene.
1: Ah, yes. Uh, Used occasionally in the cheaper sorts of confectionery to give an almond flavour, instead of oil of bitter almonds. That, of course, is itself a powerful poison. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chitterwick.
2: I think you confirm it's not very often used in confectionery these days. Mm. I gather the main use for nitrobenzene nowadays is in the manufacture of aniline dyes.
0: Chief Inspector Moresby has agreed to take us through the police investigation to the point where they called a halt. Now, I believe the first thought was that a terrible mistake had occurred during the manufacture of the chocolates.
2: Yes, obviously. How long did the accident theory last? Not long, Sir Charles. To be precise, the one day between the analyst's preliminary identification of the poison and his subsequent more detailed report because in examining the chocolates more closely, he discovered several vital facts. First, only the top layer had been poisoned. The chocolates underneath were quite all right. Second, each chocolate in the top layer contained not the liqueur named on the wrapper, but a blend of maraschino, kummel and kirsch with exactly six minims of nitrobenzene. Third and most damning of all, In the bottom of each of the poisoned chocolates, there was clear evidence of a hole having been drilled and subsequently plugged with a piece of melted chocolate. That clinched it. It was, of course, a case of foul play, a deliberate and meticulously planned attempt to be made to murder Sir Eustace Pennyfather. An attempt which had gone tragically wrong. Did you
4: recover the letter that accompanied the chocolates?
2: Oh, yes, Miss Dammers, and the wrapping paper. They now became of vital importance... As a matter of fact, it's quite clear that the letter was written on an old piece of paper. It's distinctly yellow round the edges. I'll pass it round, but please be careful. Mrs. Fielder-Fleming?
7: Oh, Uh,
9: thank you, Chief Inspector. To to think that this was actually handled by the murderer. Look, Alicia, it it really is quite faded round the edges. Mm.
2: To cut a long story shorter, we've had that paper examined by Crossman's usual printers a firm called Webster's in Fifth Street. And they're prepared to swear it's their work. Worse luck. You mean, of course, that if the heading had been a copy, it would have been comparatively simple to discover the printers? Correct, Sir Charles. So all we have got is that the murderer is someone who had access to Crossman's paper up to six months ago. And that's pretty wide.
3: Uh, you said you recovered the wrapping paper as well.
2: Quite right, Mr Bradley. So we did. I have it here. As you can see, Sir Eustace's name and address are hand-printed. Yes? The postmark? Mm. Well, that shows it was sent by the 9.30pm post from the post office in Southampton Street. Right. There's a collection at 8.30 as well, so it must have been put in the box sometime between half-past eight and Mm. half-past nine. Mm -hmm. You may examine the wrapping paper if you wish. Yes, I should like to. Many thanks. Uh, Who would benefit by Sir Eustace's death? Good question, Mr Bradley. Most of his possessions go to his wife. I see. She has a divorce suit pending against him, and she's out of the country. Really? We've checked her movements, and she's just not a possibility. Is that all you've got to tell us? That's all, Mr. Sheringham. Well, I've played my part in this evening's affair. Now I must leave you good members of the crime circle to go about your business as you see fit. A toast! To our honoured guest, with which I couple a vote of hearty thanks. Chief Inspector Mosby.
3: Chief Chief Inspector 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 Mosby. Thank you
2: very much. my pleasure. I'll see you out. Good night, everybody. (coughs) Good night, Inspector.
0: Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Well. That extremely interesting. interesting.
4: interesting.
5: I've been thinking. Any new facts we discover, should we pool them? What do you say, Sheringham?
0: What's that, Sir Charles?
5: I was saying, shouldn't we put
0: any new facts we happen to uncover at the disposal of everyone? Well, I thought a lot about this, but on the whole, I think we should each of us retain whatever we discover. After all, we're all starting off equal.
3: I agree that that should apply from the moment we leave this room, but I would say that if anyone can add to the Chief Inspector's statement at this moment, they should do so.
4: But can anyone? Sir Charles knew the Bendixes and Sir Eustace, didn't you, Sir Charles? Oh. And I knew Sir Eustace, of course.
0: Quite well, Miss Danners, at one time, I believe.
4: Oh, at one time. I needn't give you my opinion of Sir Eustace if you've read Flesh and the Devil. You know what I think. (laughs) And I've no reason to suppose he's changed. Do you agree with my opinion, Sir Charles?
5: Don't know the man well, no wish to. Thoroughly bad lot. Women. And he drinks too much. You all know there was talk at one time of an engagement with my daughter. A prospect I viewed with much pleasure. Glad say it all came to nothing.
4: I gather he's taken up with some fresh woman. I'd have given him credit for some finer feelings, even though Mrs Bendix was a total stranger.
5: But that's not quite true. I'd almost forgotten, though he probably forgot ever meeting her. I was talking to Mrs Bendix one evening at a first night, and Sir Eustace came up to me. I I introduced them and said something about Bendix being a member of the Rainbow.
4: Then I'm afraid I was too kind about him.
0: Now, about our next meeting... (laughs) I suggest we have a clear week for formulating our theories and carrying out any investigations. And then I propose that we meet on consecutive evenings beginning next Monday. Now, somewhere. I've got six pieces of paper with the days of the week on them. Ah, right. Now, come closer, ladies and gentlemen. Now, let's draw lots. Just take one. The order doesn't matter. All right. Now, this one will be mine. Let's see. Thursday. Right. I give you my solution to the murder on Thursday week. Now, who has Monday? I have. Well, Sir Charles, it looks as though you're opening back. <laughs> <laughs> Not for the first time. Indeed, no. <laughs> Tuesday?
9: Uh, that's me, Mr. Sheringham.
4: So
0: be it, Mrs. Raining. i I've got Wednesday. Wednesday, Mr. Bradley. I'm Thursday. Now, who has Friday?
4: I have that honour.
0: Right, Miss Dammers. And that leaves Mr. Chitterwick for the concluding presentation on Saturday evening. Oh, dear... How on earth will I find
1: anything new to say after you've all gone over the case? <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I'd be a great anticlimax. I'm sure. Order. Ladies
0: and gentlemen, it's been agreed that we gather together again in one week's time on Monday, the 18th of November, mm-hmm. 1929, to hear Sir Charles Wildman's solution to the case of the poisoned chocolates. This meeting
3: of the Crime Circle stands adjourned. Sir Charles uh, Smithson, yes, yeah, sir. It's just as you thought, Sir Charles. Most of Crossman's business is wholesale, but they do have a few private customers. When private orders are sent out, they go with a short note, like, um, with compliments and thanks.
6: Excellent, excellent. Good work, Smithson.
3: <laughs> Thank you, uh, Sir Charles. What about that name I gave you? Uh, you were quite right, Sir Charles. There was a private account in that name. It was paid up and closed about nine months ago. There's been no order since.
5: Couldn't be better, Smithson. Mm. You've done very well. (laughs) Now remember, the boat train from Victoria at 6.30...
2: This is an unexpected pleasure, Sir Charles. We don't often see you inside Scotland Yard. I must admit, my interests usually lead in the opposite
5: direction, Chief Inspector. (sighs) I've come to ask a favour. That letter you showed us in the crime circle on Monday, do you think I could take another look at it? The one on Crossman's
2: paper? Mm. Certainly, I have it in this drawer. Why, has something new struck you? I no mean, thanks. Yes. Yes,
5: just as I thought. By Jove, Moresby, look at that.
2: Hmm?
5: No, 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 there. Do you see?
0: Ladies and gentlemen, the hmm. crime circle is in session. <laughs> Well, we are gathered this evening in eager anticipation. All six of us have spent the past week in the closest scrutiny of the circumstances surrounding Mrs Bendix's tragic death. And now, one of our number is to expound his explanation of the facts. I call on Sir Charles Wildman Casey. Thank you, Mr President.
5: Ladies and gentlemen. Now, I set about this matter with only one question in mind. The question which no criminal can avoid leaving behind him. Qui bono. Who gains? "'Who, to put it bluntly, would score by the death of Sir Eustace Pennyfather?' "'There were only three definite clues in this case. "'The chocolates, the letter, and the wrapper. "'Of those, it was the letter that intrigued me the most. "'That sheet of Crossman and Sons notepaper. "'I could not imagine how the criminal could have thought out the plot "'and then set about acquiring the paper without arousing suspicions.' The conclusion is obvious. It was the ability to obtain a sheet of Crossman's notepaper in a totally unsuspicious way that explains why it was used at all. In short, the choice of poisoned chocolates as the murder weapon depended on the possession of a sheet of Crossman's notepaper, not the other
0: way round. And that's a very interesting point indeed, Sir Charles, most ingenious. In sheer
5: guesswork, I admit, but guesswork justified in the result. You see, I ascertained to an agent that Crossman's invariably included a courtesy note with the orders they sent to their private customers. I then visited Scotland Yard to examine that letter again. By looking at the back, especially against the light, you can make out quite distinct traces of former typewritten words in the middle of the page. They couldn't possibly be an erasure from the letter itself because they run through the middle of the typing. Huh. And this seemed highly promising. But when I discovered that the individual I had in mind had actually had an account with Crossman's, which had been closed about nine months ago, uh, just enough time for the paper to acquire that interesting yellowing, the evidence seemed conclusive. So, I set about clearing up any other doubtful points. For example, the postmark. The case turned on proving that the suspect had actually been in the neighbourhood of the Strand when their parcel was posted. I'm convinced the murderer would never have entrusted the task of posting those chocolates to anyone else, not even an unwitting accomplice. A friend, say, travelling to England, so that the suspect might have an unshakable alibi.
3: Of course, Sir Charles, Lady Pennyfather may not have had an innocent accomplice, but a guilty one. You've considered that? Lady
5: Pennyfather? Hmm. Did I mention that name? I think it would be most imprudent to mention any names.
0: In normal circumstances, I would agree with you, Sir Charles, but on the whole, do you not think this occasion might be regarded as privileged?
5: Mm. Yes. On reflection, uh, I think we might take that risk.
0: Excellent. Please proceed, Sir Charles.
5: I was asked whether Lady Pennyfather might have had a guilty accomplice.
0: I have satisfied myself she did not. She planned and carried through the affair alone. But how could she, Sir Charles? We know she was in the south of France the whole time. The police investigated that point. She has a complete alibi. She had a complete alibi. I have destroyed
5: it.
9: Good heavens, Sir Charles. What have you found out about poor Pauline?
5: Just this, Mrs. Field of Fleming. Three days before the parcel was posted, Lady Pennyfather left Monton and went ostensibly for a week to Avignon. At the end of the week, she returned to Monton. Her signature is in the hotel register at Avignon. She has a receipted bill. Everything is in order. The only curious thing is that apparently she did not take her maid, a very superior young woman, with her. And yet the maid did not stay at Monton. Did the maid vanish into thin air?
1: Oh, I see. Mm. How ingenious.
5: Highly ingenious. It was the maid who had the week's holiday at Avignon while the mistress paid a secret visit to England. So Lady Pennyfather did
3: have an accomplice?
5: An innocent accomplice. My agent questioned the maid tactfully. Uh, Lady Pennyfather told her she had to go over to England on urgent business, but because she'd already spent six months of the current year there, she'd have to pay British income tax if she so much as set foot in England again that year. This plan was a way round, eased by a handsome gift to the girl.
4: How very clever of you, Sir
5: Charles. I have no actual proof of her stay in this country. That would be for the police. But in all other respects, I submit that my case is complete. I regret. I regret exceedingly having to say so, but I have no alternative. Lady Pennyfather is the person responsible for
1: Mrs. Bendix's death. (laughs) We must congratulate you, Sir Charles. Uh, Your solution is as brilliant as it is surprising. Only one question occurs to me. Uh, Motive. Why should Lady Pennyfather want to murder her husband? especially since she's in the middle of divorcing him. This is the moment to reveal some personal
5: information. You already know there was talk of an engagement between Sir Eustace and my daughter. Indeed. Oh, not many weeks before Mrs Bendix died, Sir Eustace came and formally asked me to sanction an engagement as soon as his wife's decree nice I had been granted. I need not tell you all that transpired at that interview. What is relevant is that Sir Eustace told me that his wife had been extremely unwilling to divorce him, and he had only succeeded in the end by making a will entirely in her favour, including his estate in Worcestershire. His life was, moreover, heavily insured in favour of Lady Pennyfather. You cannot fail to grasp the significance of this. Lady Pennyfather stood at that moment to become a comparatively rich woman on her husband's death, but rumours are reaching her ears of a possible marriage between that husband and another woman as soon as the divorce is complete. What more probable than a new will and life insurance as soon as such an engagement is concluded? Her character is already clear from her willingness to accept an inducement to divorce. She is obviously a grasping woman,
3: greedy for money. Murder is only one more step for such a woman. And what about the chocolates? Is it part of your case that she prepared them over here or brought them with her? Is that material? Well, surely it's very material to connect her with the poison. Nitrobenzene? She'd
5: have no difficulty in getting hold of that.
4: You don't know Pauline, Sir Charles. Um, Lady Pennyfarber.
5: I do
1: not.
4: Evidently. Uh, you don't agree with Sir Charles' theory, Miss Dammers? Oh, I do not. Uh,
1: may I ask why?
4: Certainly, Mr. Chitterwick. And it's conclusive, I'm afraid, Sir Charles. I was in Paris at the time of the murder. Just about the time the parcel was being posted, I'm afraid I was talking to Pauline Pennyfather in the foyer of the opera. What? (laughs) (laughs) I should apologise for not interrupting you for I suppose, but I wanted to see what sort of a case you could put up against her. And I really do congratulate you a remarkable piece of inductive reasoning. If I hadn't happened to know it was built upon a complete fallacy, you would have had me quite
5: convinced. But uh, why the secrecy? Why the impersonation?
4: Oh. Sir Eustace wasn't the only one waiting for the divorce to marry again. And in the interim, Pauline, quite rightly, didn't see why she should waste valuable time, after all. She isn't as young as she used to be. (laughs) (laughs) But you know the rules governing divorce, Sir Charles. Uh. The King's Proctor is always waiting to pounce on the so-called innocent party, isn't he? Uh.
7: Madam?
9: Is Sir Eustace Pennyfather at home?
7: I'm afraid not, madam. Sir Eustace left for his club ten minutes ago.
9: I know. I saw him go. It's you I want to talk to. Madam? Well, aren't you going to invite me in?
7: I'm not sure I should. What do you want?
9: Whatever it is, it will be to your advantage. Come in, madam. Mr Barker
7: isn't it? Quite right. But you have the advantage of me.
9: My name is Fielder Fleming. You may have heard of me.
7: You write plays, don't you?
9: I've two on in London at the moment.
7: Well, what can I do for you?
9: I'll be quite open with you. I want information, and I'm willing to pay for it.
7: Information? About Sir Eustace. What do you want to know?
9: About his so-called engagement to Miss Wildman.
7: I'm not sure it's ethical for a man to reveal his master's private affairs.
9: There. Will that stave off the pangs of conscience?
7: <clears throat> very generous, madam.
9: Now, did he love the girl?
7: Love? He doesn't know the meaning of the word. What then? Money, of course. Sir Charles Waldman's a very rich man.
9: Is Sir Eustace in financial difficulties?
7: I should say. They'll even be worse off once the divorce goes through. He's not only got the racing and the other gambling debts, he'll have that settlement on Lady Pennyfather to meet. He saw his salvation in Miss Wildman. Do you know, he promised me a hundred pounds on the day he led that filly to the altar.
0: His words, not mine.
9: Poor Miss Wildman.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's Tuesday, and here we all are together again as arranged. Mrs Fielder Fleming, if I may coin a phrase particularly apposite in your case, the uh, stage is yours. (laughs) Uh, uh,
9: Ladies and gentlemen, I have a very difficult duty to perform. A well-nigh intolerable burden has been laid on me by certain knowledge that has come into my possession.
3: Uh, You mean you've solved the little problem?
9: With infinite regret, I have. Mm
3: -hmm.
9: (laughs) Now, it's not surprising that I should regard this crime from the point of view of my calling. In fact, of one of the oldest dramatic situations. And very soon, everything became only too clear. I am referring to what is commonly known as the eternal triangle. (laughs) Now, I wasn't expecting a hackneyed situation. After all... A triangle need not necessarily include a husband and wife among its members. Any three people can form one.
5: Mm. What's that? What exactly are you trying to say, Mrs. Field of Fleming?
9: We've agreed to waive the law of slander. That is right, is it not, Mr. President? We utter any name without fear or favour.
0: Perfectly correct, Mrs. Field of Fleming.
9: Very well, then. I will go on. My triangle had two of its members, Sir Eustace and the girl he was proposing to marry. Where was the third person to be found? You'll note that so far I agree with Sir Charles's explanation of this case. Where we part company is in our deduction of who that third member is. Now, Sir Charles suggested Lady Pennyfather, but that theory has been virtually destroyed. He suggested simple gain as the motive. To my way of thinking, it is in the character of Sir Eustace that the clue to the motive in this case must be sought. He is not merely immoral. He is a rake, a spendthrift, without honour or scruple where women are concerned. A man who has already made a mess of one marriage. Therein lies the key to the mystery.
5: Mr President, I'm afraid I don't quite understand where Mrs of Fleming is leading us. Is she making the proposal? Postrous accusation that some friend of my daughter's is responsible for the crime? Well, I really don't know, Sir Charles.
9: May I remind Sir Charles that I have not yet finished developing my case?
5: Damn stupid case if you ask me.
9: I have succeeded in obtaining two pieces of vital evidence. The first is that Sir Eustace wasn't in love with Miss Wildman at all. He intended to marry her simply for what he hoped to get of her father's money. Your money. Sir Charles.
0: Very interesting, Mrs. Field of Fleming. How did you discover that?
9: From Sir Eustace's manservant, Mr. Sherringham. Hmm. I interrogated him. He was quite open, on payment of a reasonable consideration.
1: Rather a tainted source, don't you think?
9: Oh, I was able to verify most of what he said, Mr. Chitterwick. And that brings me to the second piece of my evidence, the foundation stone of the whole structure, the very reason in the murderer's mind for what he had to do. Miss Wildman was hopelessly, unreasonably, irrevocably infatuated with Sir Eustace Pennyfather.
5: May one ask how you found that out, madam, from my daughter's maid?
9: Of course. Detecting, I discover, is an expensive hobby... Let me now go on to connect my murderer with the few facts at our disposal. That letter, for example. I examined it closely the other evening. Now, I know something about typewriters, and I can vouch that it was typed on a Hamilton. The Hamilton is a pretty common machine, but the man I have in mind has a Hamilton at his place of business. A coincidence? Perhaps. Then, the notepaper. This man has a definite connection with Crossman's. Three years ago, Crossman's were involved in a lawsuit. You may remember, Sir Charles. I
5: ought to. It was against another chocolate company for infringement of copyright. I led for Crossman's.
9: Thank you. Well, this man was connected with that very case. He was helping Crossman's on the legal side. He must have had countless opportunities of acquiring a piece of their note paper, And what more natural than that he should still have a sheet? Yellow, now, with age, and with a note jotted in the middle. That, I suggest, explains the erasure. Then the postmark. The man I have in mind was attending a public dinner in the Hotel Cecil on the night the parcel was posted. And the Hotel Cecil, I need not remind you, is a stone's throw from the Southampton Street post office. (sighs) That is all. I submit I have proved my case. This man is the murderer. Well, who is he then?
5: Precisely. Let us get out in the open... Against whom are these ridiculous insinuations of yours directed, madam?
9: Accusations, Sir Charles. You pretend you don't know.
5: Really, madam, I'm afraid I have no idea.
9: You, Sir Charles, you are the murderer.
5: Don't oh, the woman's mad.
9: No, no, I am not mad, Sir Charles. I am very, very sane. You love your daughter. You considered that any lengths were justified to prevent her from falling into the hands of Sir Eustace Pennyfather, from having her youth, her innocence, her trust exploited by such a scoundrel. When nothing short of killing him could avert that catastrophe, you did not shrink. Sir Charles Wildman, may God be your judge, for I cannot be. (laughs)
3: Well, Sir Charles, I wouldn't have thought it of you. Very naughty. Uh, Would you like me to telephone the police, Mr President? Not yet, I think. We haven't heard yet what
0: Sir Charles has to answer.
5: Am I really expected to defend myself against this... this hysteria? Very well, then. I admit... I attended a dinner at the Hotel Sissel on the evening in question, and that I would cheerfully have strangled Sir Eustace with my bare hands rather than see him marry my daughter. But how to prove I didn't send the chocolates? All I can say is that I am perfectly prepared for this accusation to be investigated officially. Mr. President, you must take whatever action you think is fit.
0: Well, speaking for myself, Sir Charles, I am quite sure that Mrs. Fielder Fleming's reasoning, exceedingly clever though it was, has been based on an error. Mm -hmm. Really, as a matter of mere probability, I can't see a father sending poisoned chocolates to the would-be fiancée of his own daughter. A moment's thought would show the practical inevitability of the chocolates reaching the daughter herself. Mm
4: -hmm. So,
0: I formally propose that we shelve the question of Sir Charles for one week from today, when any member who wishes may bring it up again for decision. All in favour? Yes. Yes, Yes. Carried unanimously. I declare this meeting of the crime circle adjourned. We meet again tomorrow night.
10: Roger! Roger! Uh, I don't know Roger! What. Roger!
1: Roger!
10: Roger! Roger! Roger Sherringham, I do declare. The very person I wanted to see.
0: Hello, Marguerite.
10: Roger, do tell me, you are taking up this dreadful business of poor Joan Bendix's death, aren't you? Don't say you're not. It's simply too dreadful. You really ought to try and find out who sent Eustace those chocolates.
0: Yes, well, love. I was
10: horrified. You see, Joan and I were such very close friends. Quite intimate we were at school together. Oh, did I interrupt you?
0: Not really. I was only going to say that... The awful
10: thing, the truly terrible thing, is that Joan brought the whole thing on herself. Now, isn't that appalling?
5: What did you say?
10: Well, you know about that bet she made with Graham? The bet about spotting the villain before the end of Act Two. A classic case of tragic irony. If she hadn't made that bet, dear Graham Bendix would never have taken her that box of chocolates and she'd be alive today. Well, Roger, dear, I've not told this to a living soul, but I know you'll appreciate it. Joan wasn't playing fair.
0: Wasn't playing fair? How do you mean?
10: I mean, she'd seen that play before. We went together the very first week it was on. She knew who the villain was all the time. If only she hadn't tried to score off her husband. Oh, poor, poor girl. Yes?
3: Uh, you are Mrs Marguerite vericure le
10: I am indeed. Oh, but you don't look like a policeman. Not one teeny bit. Oh. Have I done something awful? Do you uh, tell.
3: Oh, no, madam, nothing like that. I, I hope you will forgive the intrusion, but I represent the publishing firm of Smithers and Fowler. We understand you have a particular interest in books on crime.
10: But how terribly clever of you. I simply adore criminology. So
3: we've been told. Now, madam, I have here a brand new publication Popular Murder by the well-known writer of detective fiction Morton Harrogate Brantley. Would you care to examine it? If you then wish to place an order, I can guarantee delivery within two days.
10: My dear, I should simply adore helping you to make up your quota, but do come with me. I've something to show you. Oh. (laughs) Over here
3: oh but this is magnificent madam i congratulate you a truly impressive collection of books on crime Mm.
10: and here voila popular murders by morton harrigat bradley i placed an order the very moment i heard it was coming out Mm. Next time, do call before publication. Hmm?
3: I'll tell the publishers, madam. Um, may I ask how long you've had this interest in criminology?
10: Oh, not as long as all that. Actually, to be absolutely frank, it's a particular criminologist I'm interested in, much more than crime in general. Uh-huh. But that's often the way one gets led into a subject, isn't it? Oh,
3: absolutely. Oh,
10: do you happen to know Roger Sheringham? Uh, I've heard the name. An yeah. Absolute sweetie, I adore him. A little while ago, he set up a very close little circle of people interested in crime. I'm absolutely determined to break into it. It's Mm. a sort of challenge. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And murder is simply too fascinating, isn't it?
0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Wednesday evening, as I'm sure I need not remind you. Following our experiences yesterday, I must admit that I, for one, await Mr. Bradley's
3: exposition with
0: some trepidation.
3: <laughs> no need, Mr. President, no need, I assure you. I shall be brief and, I hope, to the point, and discretion itself when it comes to naming names.
4: That'll make a pleasant change. Order,
3: order, Mr. Bradley, you have the floor. <laughs> well, um, I started my consideration of this case with the poison. The use of nitrobenzene seemed to me the most important piece of evidence, simply because the sort of person who would ever think of employing the stuff at all ought to be definable within surprisingly narrow limits. Uh, such a person would have had to have had some sort of education, and, in my view, be the kind who might keep Taylor's medical jurisprudence on their shelves. Mind you, that is pure guesswork, I admit. My other conclusions are not so haphazard. It struck me that Chief Inspector Moresby could have been a little more forthcoming last week, so I rang him up, and I learned that the typewriter was a Hamilton number 4, that the handwritten address was written with a fountain pen, almost certainly an onyx fitted with a medium broad nib, and that the ink was Harfield's. Based on this, what I did was to copy my own detective's methods and set about the business systematically. (laughs) I drew up a list of conditions which this criminal of ours must fulfil. I won't bore you with the details, but I will say that I have calculated that the mathematical odds against their all being fulfilled in one person are in excess of four billion to one. (laughs) They include the requirement to have some chemical and a good deal of criminological knowledge, to be reasonably well-educated, to have access to Crossman's notepaper, a Hamilton number no. 4 typewriter, an onyx fountain pen fitted with a medium-broad nib and filled with Harfield ink, and to have been in the vicinity of Southampton Street post office between 8.30 and 9.30 on the evening before the murder.
5: Have you found someone, in spite of these astronomic odds, who fits the conditions?
3: I suppose she must since she did it but i haven't been able to check them all she Yes, it was a woman. Oh, that's the most obvious thing about the case. I wonder it's never been mentioned. Oh, surely this is quite obviously a woman's crime. It would never occur to a man to send poisoned chocolates to another man.
4: Well, aren't you going to tell us who did it, Mr Bradley?
3: Uh, my dear, Miss Damas, it's no good since I can't prove it. Uh-huh. Besides, there is a small matter of the lady's honour involved. She happens to have been Sir Eustace's mistress at one time. Oh. Ah, then you think... Jealousy is the motive. Mm. Convinced of it. But what I am not convinced of is that the intended victim was really Sir Eustace. Not
0: the intended
3: victim? Well, how do you make that well, I'll tell you. I've discovered that Sir Eustace had a lunch engagement on the day of the murder. An engagement that was cancelled in the event. Oh, now, oh. <laughs> it was uh, certainly with a woman. <laughs> but almost certainly not with Miss Wildman. Mm. He was very secretive about it, but in my opinion, the woman who sent the chocolates knew about that lunch. She may not have known about the cancellation. My suggestion, and it is only a suggestion since I can't substantiate it, is that those chocolates were not intended for Sir Eustace at all, but for the sender's rival. The lady who'd arranged to have lunch with him on the day of the murder. Uh This is quite a new idea. And this unknown, discarded missus? Uh, not unknown to me. Does she possess a knowledge of chemistry and crime? Well, I happen to know that the good lady has a copy of Taylor's Medical Jurisprudence and that in her flat there's a whole bookcase filled with works on crime. <clears throat> She's a personal friend of yours. I, oh, no. Uh, I've only met her once, uh, when I was posing as a door-to-door salesman. Oh, and uh, while I was there I saw a photograph of Sir Eustace. I'd already discovered it from another source, but that confirmed she had been one of his lady loves. Oh, by the way, Sherringham, you know the naughty lady. I do, do I? Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, I thought I might. Look here, if I write the name down, do you mind telling me if I'm right
3: or wrong? (laughs) Not in the least. I was going to suggest something of the sort myself. Well, that's the person, I suppose. Mm -hmm. quite right.
0: And you base most of your case against her on her interest in
3: criminology. You might put it like that. Then you're wrong, Bradley. What? Dead wrong. Of that, I'm quite sure. Really, Mr President? Uh, Well, then I accept your assurance. Um, uh, To be honest, I'm not sure I ever quite believed it myself.
6: Can I help you? Good morning. Uh, Travellers, Tuesdays and Friday mornings, 10 to 11. Look, I've told you, we only
0: see travellers... I'm not a traveller, at least not a commercial one. Well, what do you want? I'm a solicitor. I'm inquiring into the matter of a certain Mr. Joseph Lee Hardwick, who was employed here in the nitrobenzene department. Never heard of him. No, but you do have a nitrobenzene department. You can scarcely deny that a major perfumery company has a nitrobenzene department. But well, what of it? It's been reported to my firm that this man met his death because insufficient warning is given to employees about the dangerous nature of this substance. Now I should. Are like... you
6: saying one of our men died? I don't believe it. I'd have been the first you know. If yet. it
0: had been hushed up, I'd like you to show me a copy of the warning hung up in the factory.
6: Well, look, I'm very sorry. I can't oblige you. But I do know all the workers are warned it's poisonous, and everyone's very careful about how it's handled. But to go round the factory, you'll have to see one of the direct... No need.
0: No need at all. Thank you. Learned all I wanted. Good morning. Yeah, good morning to you see, my firm is very particular about its notepaper, and we've been very badly let down. Now, I've come to Webster's because a friend of mine has recommended you very highly. Oh, we do have a reputation, sir. My friend was very struck with a heavy, cream-laid paper of yours. I'm not sure I can find it. I wonder if you served him. Do you know? I believe I've got my friend's photograph on me this very minute. One second. Um, yes, there. Recognise it. So that's your friend,
6: uh... Well, isn't that strange? Yes, I do recognise it. (laughs) Small
0: world, isn't it? (laughs) A few weeks ago, my friend was in here last, I think. Yes, it was a little while back. Now, I wonder if this was the stock you have in mind? Ladies and gentlemen, as the one responsible for this experiment, I think I can congratulate myself. The three members who have spoken so far have shown a quite outstanding ingenuity of observation and argument. And what has made the experiment even more interesting is that each has hit on a different person for the criminal. Mm. Well, now, Thursday has come round and it's my turn to address you and I am going to suggest somebody quite different.
9: Someone else? Oh, it's not possible.
0: I assure you, my dear Mrs. Field of Fleming, that it is. You may be interested to know that at first I followed Mr. Bradley's train of thought. I was convinced that the crime was the work of a woman and a discarded mistress of Sir Eustace's at that. I have now changed all my opinions in toto. Don't tell me I was wrong all along the line. Almost, old chap. Hmm. I regret to say I can't claim all the credit for discovering the truth of this affair. To be quite honest, it was sheer luck. A chance meeting with a silly woman in Bond Street put me in possession of a piece of information, trivial in itself, which immediately altered the whole case. I saw in a flash. From the beginning, I'd been making the fundamental mistake the murderer had intended the police and everybody else to make. So who did send those chocolates, then? (laughs) Oh, Miss Bammers, do let me work my story up a little first.
4: You have the floor, Mr Preston.
0: You know, this really was a very remarkable case. On the whole, I'm inclined to consider it the most perfectly planned murder I've ever heard of. It's so exactly right, ingenious, utterly simple, and as near as possible infallible. But not as infallible as all that, is she? The motive's so obvious when you know where to look for it. And as for the method and the way the murderer covered the tracks, beautiful. Everything was anticipated. The soap was left lying about in chunks, and we all hurried to stuff our eyes with it. Really,
9: Mr Sheringham, you're getting quite
0: lyrical. A perfect murder makes me feel lyrical. Let me begin with the evidence. Mr Bradley's list of conditions. I agree and can prove that the murderer must have at least an elementary knowledge of chemistry and criminology. Mm -hmm. I don't agree that he or she must have had possession of Crossman's notepaper. Mm -hmm. It was an ingenious idea that possession of the notepaper suggested the method of the crime, but I think it mistaken. Chocolates were decided on, and since Crossman's With the largest chocolate manufacturers, it became necessary to obtain a sheet of their paper, and I'm able to show how this was done. As to the typewriter, well, we're dealing with a very astute criminal. I think the machine was bought specially for the occasion. You may be interested to know that I spent a whole afternoon making inquiries at typewriter shops in the centre of town till I ran down the place where it had been bought. The shopkeeper was able to identify my murderer from a photograph I had with me.
9: And where is the machine now?
0: At the bottom of the Thames, I expect. To continue. Yes, I agree. The criminal must have been at Southampton Street Post Office the night before the murder. My murderer has a mild alibi, but it doesn't hold the water. The pen and ink, well, I don't attach much importance to them. Both are very common, easily obtained and disposed of.
5: It's the notepaper I'm interested in. In my opinion, that's the point on which any case must depend. How do you prove the possession of the notepaper, Sheringham?
0: The notepaper was extracted shortly before the murder from one of Webster's book of sample notepaper headings which explains the Yellow Ages. The erasure you first noted, Sir Charles, would be some private mark of Webster's, something like this style, five shillings and ninepence. There are three identical sample books at Webster's. Two include a sheet of Crossman's paper. From the third, it's missing. My murderer was identified from the photograph as having been at Webster's. Mm. That sounds pretty conclusive. Now we come to the trap the murderer laid for us and into which we all so weakly fell. It's quite simply this. We were all expected to believe, and every one of us, except I grant you Mr Bradley, did believe that the murderer's plan had miscarried, that the real victim, Sir Eustace, had escaped by a lucky chance, while the wrong person, poor Mrs Bendix, had died. What?
1: Good heavens, do you mean... Are you suggesting that you're not saying... Exactly,
0: ladies and gentlemen, the plan did not miscarry. On the contrary, it went through flawlessly. Very much the right person was killed. What's all this you're now telling us? How on earth do you make it out? What I'm saying, quite soberly, is that Mrs Bendix was the target all the time. And what finally opened my eyes to the plot, the vital piece of information I got in Bond Street, was this. Mrs Bendix had seen that play before she went to it with her husband. You see the significance? Well, it means she already knew the answer to that bet with her husband we've been told about, the bet about the identity of the villain. But you've all heard Mrs Bendix described as a straightforward, honest girl. Does that square mm. with the idea of her making a bet to which she already knew the answer? Mm. Oh. oh, very pretty. Uh, you get the point now, Mr. Bradley. Mm-hmm. It's a psychological impossibility. Mm-hmm. Ergo, she didn't. Ergo, that bet was never made. Ergo, Bendix was lying. Very. Oh. Ergo, Bendix wanted to get hold of those chocolates from Sir Eustace for a different reason from the one he stated. That's my case. So, uh,
4: the murderer is Graham Bendix.
0: Without a shadow of a doubt. But the motive... Quite simply, Bendix was tired of his wife. I found out that his name's been mentioned in connection with more than one woman, even since his marriage. Usually actresses. I'm pretty sure his wife wasn't prepared to tolerate infidelity, not even passing episodes. But the real trouble was that she was too close with her money, and that I know for a fact. That's where she sentenced herself to death. One of the first things I did was to look up the firms Bendix is interested in. Do you know they're all rocky? All need money. And I found time to run down to Somerset House. It was just as I suspected. Joan Bendix's will is entirely in his
3: favour. Half a million pounds worth. Motive allowed. But how about the nitrobenzene? I think I can satisfy
0: you. Nitrobenzene, as you know, is used in perfumery. Mm-hmm. In the list of Bendix's businesses is the Anglo Eastern Perfumery Company. I made a special and dreadful journey out to Acton for the express purpose of finding out whether Anglo Eastern used nitrobenzene. It turned out they did, and that they knew how deadly it is, so Bendix had every opportunity to learn about the substance and indeed to obtain some, though. I'm inclined to doubt that. I think he'd be cleverer. Probably made the stuff himself. It was a well-planned affair, wasn't it? He must have thought he'd planned against every possible contingency, and so he nearly had. It was just that little bit of unlucky grit that gets into the smooth machinery of so many clever crimes. He didn't know his wife had seen the play before. Mm -hmm. Of course, he left the theatre during the first interval and
3: posted
1: the parcel. Ah. Hmm. Yes.
3: Well, uh, it seems to me that we made something of mistake in turning the man down for membership here. We thought his criminology wasn't up to standard, didn't we? <laughs> well, well. <laughs> well.
0: We could hardly be expected to know that he was a practical criminologist rather than uh, merely a theoretical one. Uh, <laughs>
9: Mr President, I have something I feel I must say.
0: By all means, Mrs Field of Lemming.
9: Uh, Sir Charles... I offer you my sincere apologies. I've been proved quite wrong. I withdraw any suggestion that you were connected with this crime. Oh,
5: please, don't refer to it, madam. (laughs) The experience was, in any event, an interesting one. (laughs) Mr.
9: Sheringham, (laughs) why do you think Mr.
4: Bendix (laughs) took the risk of not destroying the forged letter and the wrapper when he had the chance?
0: He very carefully didn't do so. Both pieces of evidence had been specifically designed to point
1: away from him. But... Wouldn't it be a great risk to send poisoned chocolates like that to Sir Eustace? I mean, Sir Eustace mightn't have gone to his club that morning or not offered to hand them over. Or supposing he'd given them to someone else, not Bending. Oh, really, Mr
0: Chitterwick, I've tried to demonstrate that the man is a master of his craft. Oh. You don't imagine he'd actually send the poisoned chocolates through the post, do? Of course not. mm. He sent a normal box, exchanged them for the poisoned ones on his way home. Mm. I I must emphasise, we're dealing with a very great criminal. Mm -hmm. That dosing of himself with the poison, really, that was a masterstroke. He exaggerated his symptoms, no doubt, but the effect on everybody
3: was tremendous. Mm. In fact, our Uncle Bendix is a great man. (laughs) He really is.
4: You've no doubt at all that he's the criminal?
3: None at all, Miss Dammers. I agree. In fact, I... I think you have hit on the right solution. As far as I'm concerned, the mystery of the poisoned chocolate is at an end. Thank you, Mr. Bradley. So, three cheers for our sleuth-like president, mm-hmm. coupled with the name of Graham Reynard Bendix, uh, for the fine run he's given us. Hip, hip!
0: And
4: uh, you say you've definitely proved the purchase of the typewriter by Bendix and his contact with the Webster sample book?
0: Positive identification by photograph, Miss Dammers.
4: Would you give me the address of the typewriter shop?
0: Oh, here, I'll write it down. Uh, Just a minute.
4: Thank you. Uh, And who was it at Webster's who recognised the photograph?
3: One of the salesmen, um, pale, rather weedy, ginger moustache. Well, then, uh, let's proceed constitutionally. Our president no doubt moves that this meeting accepts his solution of the poisoned chocolates mystery as the right one and that a delegation be sent to the police. I do. And I second. Those in favour, Mrs. Fielder-Fleming?
9: I certainly think Mr. Sheringham has proved his case. Thank
3: you, Sir Charles. I agree. Uh, Mr. Chitterwick. I agree, too. And Miss Dammers.
9: I don't agree at all. Uh I think Mr.
4: Sherringham's exposition was exceedingly ingenious and altogether worthy of his reputation. At the same time, I think it quite wrong. Tomorrow, I hope to be able to prove to you who really committed this crime. (laughs) And as our president appears temporarily disabled, I take it upon myself to declare this meeting of the crime circle adjourned.
0: I'm not sure how we've all managed to get through the last 24 hours. (laughs) Last evening, to my satisfaction and to that of four other members of this circle, I exposed the perpetrator of this crime. Mm -hmm. The evidence I laid before you I would claim to be as convincing as it is possible to conceive of. Miss Dammers rejected it. She promised to reveal the real criminal to us this evening. Miss Dammers, we are agog. Thank you. (laughs)
4: First, I must pay tribute to our president. Mr. Sheringham's methods were a model to all of us. mm -hmm. If there were any justice, they should have led him to the right solution. It was sheer bad luck. They did not. However, I certainly agree with him that the crime didn't fail in its objective. Joan Bendix was certainly the intended victim. (laughs) Then who on earth? A little patience, Mr. President. Now... You acknowledged that your case rested on the bet between Mr. and Mrs. Bendix, and you deduced from what you had heard of Mrs. Bendix that the bet never existed at all. Ah, well, Mr. Sherringham, you were too lenient in your interpretation of feminine psychology. Mrs. Bendix was not quite so honourable as she painted herself. I'm afraid I have overwhelming evidence that the bet was made. You have? Certainly. There is a witness Mrs Bendix made, still employed
10: in the Bendix household. It was while we were going up the stairs. She said, it's a judgment on me, Dolly. I should never have made that bet with Mr Bendix. And I said, what bet, madam? And she said, I had a bet with him for a box of chocolates, and I'm sure it's those chocolates. She knew, you see. Even then...
4: "'So we have Mr Bendix displaced from his temporary role of villain "'and back again in his old part of second victim. "'But to prove it beyond question, "'I'm afraid I must demolish yet another of your conclusions, Mr Sheringham. "'You made the point that half-past ten in the morning "'was a most unusual time for Mr Bendix to arrive at his club "'and therefore highly significant. "'Well, that is perfectly true. "'Unfortunately, you attached the wrong significance to it. "'The reason wasn't guilt.' But the connivance of the real murderer. You might have given Mr. Bendix the benefit of the doubt by at least asking him.
1: You asked,
4: Graham? Bendix. Certainly I did. Mm-hmm. What could be more obvious? Good morning, Mr. Bendix. Uh, my name is Alicia
7: Dammers. We have met. I knew Joan quite well. Oh, yes, Miss Dammers, of course. I believe you wrote soon after.
4: Yes, I did. Such a terrible. It's about that that I'm phoning. Really? You know all about Roger Sheringham's crime circle. I think you're down on the list of potential members. Yes. Well, we're very dissatisfied with the failure of the police investigations so far. I see. So we decided to pool our deductive powers and see if we could find out who sent those poisoned chocolates.
7: But you're not likely to succeed where the police have failed, are you?
4: Oh, I don't know. I think we're getting somewhere. Now, there's a special meeting of the Circle tonight, Mr Bendix, and I need just a little bit of information.
7: Well, I'll do what I can.
4: A lot seems to turn on the time you arrived at the Rainbow Club that morning. Why did you get there at half-past ten? It's very
7: early. It is for me. Eustace Pennyfather seems to make a point of it. But, do you know, no one's ever asked me that. Not even the police. No, I got there at ten-thirty to take a telephone call.
9: To take a call? But why the club?
7: To be honest, it wasn't the sort of call I wished to receive at home.
4: You mean it was from a woman?
7: Miss Dammers, I'd really rather not discuss it.
4: I'm sorry, Mr Bendix, but I hope you'll bear with me. This may be quite crucial. I really do need to know how it was that you went to your club that morning expecting to receive a call.
7: You put me on a spot, Miss Dammers. In the circumstances, I feel very badly about it all. The truth is that the previous afternoon I'd been rung up at the office by a young actress I'd met once or twice called Vera Delorme. She plays a small part in Heels Up at the Regency. She asked me if I'd be free to take her out to a quiet lunch somewhere. I said I'd be delighted, and she said she hoped to be free, but she'd ring the club to confirm between 10.30 and 11.
4: I see. Well, that certainly explains a number of things. I'm very grateful to you.
9: But, Alicia, what things does that explain? I don't quite see it. You don't? But suppose Mr Lorme
4: straightly denies ever having rung Mr Bendix at all. Oh. And, of course, that was the first thing I verified. She never did.
5: Oh. Then your murderer had an accomplice, Miss Dammers.
4: He had two. Both unwitting.
5: Ah, yes. You mean Bendix and the woman who telephoned?
4: And isn't it quite obvious who that was? Why do you think Mr. Lorme's name was used? Because Mr. Bendix hardly knew her, of course, and would certainly not recognize her voice on the telephone. Obviously, the real speaker was Mrs. Mrs. Bendix? Of course. Mm. Mrs. Bendix. Carefully primed by somebody about her husband's peccadilloes. Ah, but I'm afraid I'm getting on rather too fast. I'd better complete the destruction of Mr. Sheringham's case before I build up my own.
6: Oh, dear, oh, dear.
4: (laughs) Really, Mr. Sheringham, you have altogether too great a faith in human nature, you know. I went round to that typewriter shop this morning, and I taxed the man roundly with having told you a lie. He admitted it, grinning all over his face. Well,
2: as far as I could make out, all he wanted was a good Hamilton number four, and I had a good Hamilton number four to sell. There was no harm I could see in agreeing that his friend had bought his Hamilton here. What's the odds? My machine's as good as anyone else's. No reason to lose the sale. Anyway, I could have met the fellow in the photograph, I see all types in this shop, I can tell you.
4: And as for the salesman in Webster's, he was just as ready to admit he might have made a mistake. Only the gentleman seemed so anxious. It would have been a pity to disappoint him, and he did seem likely to place quite a big order. <laughs>
6: mm.
5: Well, that does rather seem to dispose of your evidence, Mr Sheringham. So it would
0: appear.
4: Mind <laughs> you... I do agree that the note paper was extracted from that sample book at Webster's. The attendant who pretended out of innocent politeness to recognize the photograph that Mr. Sheringham showed him was able to recognize in earnest the one I produced, and not only recognize it, but identify the original by name. Really? Mr. Sheringham made a few other small points which I thought it advisable today to blunt. For instance, He decided that because most of the small firms Mr Bendix is involved in are not flourishing, Mr Bendix must be in desperate need of money. But a little more inquiry would have revealed that only a very small proportion of Mr Bendix's money is invested in these concerns. By far the greater part is still where his father left it when he died, in government stocks and safe industrial concerns. And so the motive Mr Sheringham gave him for his wife's death completely disappears. So
0: it would appear. Ladies and gentlemen... Please accept my apologies for misleading you. I take it, Miss Dammers, that you are now ready to give us your own solution to the mystery. Of
4: course. Now, after I had cleared up Mr Bendick's reason for arriving at his club that morning so early, there remained only one obscure point, apparently of no importance, to which no one had given any attention. I mean the lunch engagement Sir Eustace had had that day, which must subsequently have been cancelled... I don't know how Mr Bradley discovered this, but I got it from that useful valet who gave Mrs Fielder Fleming so much interesting information. (laughs) Oh, I must admit that in this area I have an advantage over other members of this circle. Not only did I know Sir Eustace himself so well, but uh, I knew his valet too. Backed by acquaintance and money, I was able to extract a good deal from him.
7: Funny you should ask that, Miss Damas. I did book Sir Eustace a private room for lunchtime for the day of the murder. Fellow's Hotel in German Street. Do you know it?
4: For the day of the murder? Are you sure? How can you be sure?
7: With respect, madam, you aren't the only person seeking information about the murder. I've been forced to refresh my memory. I've got it all off now.
4: All right, Barker, I accept that. Well, then, who was Sir Eustace going to lunch with that day?
7: Obviously a woman, but I'm afraid I don't know which one. Not Miss Wildman, though, that's for sure. All his dealings with Miss Wildman were quite open. This he kept secret, even from me. I don't know what he got up to, not by a long chalk. And then it was cancelled? On the day before the murder, yes. It was suddenly called off. I never knew why.
4: Now, isn't there something reminiscent about this uh, cancelled lunch appointment on the day of the crime? It didn't strike me for a long time, and then I remembered. Mrs Bendix had a lunch engagement for that day, too which was also cancelled for some reason unknown on the previous afternoon.
9: Oh, my ears and whiskers. Mrs. Bendix. Yes.
4: (laughs) I won't keep you on tenterhooks, Mabel. From what Sir Charles told us, I knew Mrs. Bendix and Sir Eustace weren't total strangers. It took some doing, but I discovered that it was Mrs. Bendix who was to have lunched with Sir Eustace in a private room at the somewhat notorious Fellow's Hotel. for heaven's sake! That's easy to answer. Because she was his mistress.
5: Why? (laughs) Uh, Can you... uh, can you substantiate that statement?
4: But of course. I have sworn depositions to prove it. Mrs Bendix had been in the habit of lunching at least twice a week with Sir Eustace. And occasionally dining, too. Always at Fellows', always the same room. A room, I may say, with a bedroom leading off. A bedroom invariably used, according to their regular waiter. I imagine that would be accepted as clear enough evidence of adultery, Sir Charles. Oh,
5: undoubtedly, undoubtedly.
4: They must have made a curious couple, those two. Perhaps it was their widely differing scales of values that brought them together. A good woman often thinks she can reform a bad man. (laughs) Vice versa. The trouble with Joan Bendix was that she was obsessed with her own goodness. I would guess that her mind would have turned quite soon towards putting matters to rights by telling her husband, arranging a divorce and marrying Sir Eustace. Of course, nothing would be further from his mind. Comparatively wealthy as Joan Bendix was, he had set his sights on an heiress, Miss Wildman. The more pressing Mrs Bendix gets, the more he hates her. Oh, then she must have heard about Miss Wildman. That must be stopped at once. She tells Sir Eustace that if he doesn't break it off, she will break it off for him. He sees the whole thing coming out in a second divorce court and all hopes of Miss Wildman and her fortune gone forever. Mm. Something has to be done, but what? Mm. Nothing short of murder will stop the damned woman's tongue. But how to set about it?
7: Now, Miss Dammers, that's not Sir Eustace's book. It turned up about two months ago.
4: I know it's not his, Barker, it's mine. Taylor's medical jurisprudence. I wondered where it had got to. I think he must have lifted it from my flat.
3: (sighs) Rather dry sort of book for Sir Eustace.
4: Oh, I don't know. You'd be surprised what you can learn from it.
3: The man deserves what's coming to him.
4: However, let me complete the reconstruction. He organises the nitrobenzene and fills the chocolates. "'He arranges to meet Mrs. Bendix for lunch, "'intending to make her a present of them. "'Of course, they are to arrive by post that morning, "'and the porter at the Rainbow is to be his witness. "'But then he sees the floor. "'If he gives the chocolates to her in person at the Fellows Hotel, "'his intimacy with her must be disclosed. "'So he finds a much better plan. "'He gets hold of Mrs. Bendix "'and spins some story about her husband and Vera de Lorme. "'Characteristically she falls in with the idea of ringing up her husband pretending to be vera de to find out whether he will jump at the chance of an intimate lunch the presence of mr bendix at the rainbow is therefore assured for the next morning and sir eustace can hand over to him The chocolates. Mm. (laughs) As for the bet that clinched the charade, I'm sure it was arranged in some way by Sir Eustace. I won't attempt to show how that would be mere guesswork.
5: If you've any solid evidence to support this theory, Miss Dammers, I do suggest. Meaning
4: uh, the evidence I've already given isn't solid enough for the legal mind. Well, it happens I've been saving something up, something absolutely and finally conclusive. Uh. Now, I have here two documents. The photograph I obtained from Chief Inspector Moresby the other day, it is of the forged letter, actual size. I should like everybody to compare it with uh, this typed copy of the letter. Will you look at them first, please, Mr. Sheringham, and then pass them round? Uh, Notice particularly the slightly crooked S's and the chipped capital H.
0: There isn't the slightest doubt about it. Those two were typed on the same machine.
4: You will find that machine not at the bottom of the Thames, Mr. Sheringham but in Sir Eustace's
9: rooms.
5: Ah. <laughs> Miss Damers, I congratulate you. You have rendered society a great service. Do you
9: realise we have made history? Where the whole police force has failed, a woman has uncovered the mystery. Alicia, this is a red-letter day, not only for you and for the crime circle, but for women generally.
7: <laughs> Thank you, Mabel.
4: How nice of you to say so. Mr Sheringham? I think you'd better take charge of those documents. And, uh as president, perhaps you'll inform the police.
0: Well, I'd better see Mosby tonight. Will you come with me, Sir Charles? It would add weight. Certainly, certainly. certainly. Uh,
1: excuse me, I I suppose you couldn't put it off for 24 hours, could you? Put mm. it off? Mm. Why, <laughs> Mr Chittabee? <laughs> well, uh I hadn't spoken yet, you know. <laughs> no, of course mm. you haven't. And, well, I mean, that is to say, uh, you want to? Uh I have a theory. Uh, I don't want to speak, no, but I have a theory.
0: Well, I suppose another 24 hours wouldn't make much difference. Not after all this time. All right, Mr Chitterwick, we'll do as you ask. Oh. I declare this meeting of the Crime Circle adjourned, and we meet again on Saturday night at exactly 9 o'clock. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We meet for the sixth and last of our extraordinary sessions. Now, at one point last night, we didn't expect to be having this meeting. As we're all aware, it is being called at Mr Chittowick's request. I
1: therefore call on Mr Chittowick. To address us. Yes. Oh, Mr. President, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I I quite realise how perverse I must seem in insisting on having my turn, as it were. Mm. But though Miss Dammer's exposition was very clever and her proofs seemed very definite, I couldn't help reflecting that over the past five evenings we've actually heard... Five apparently convincing solutions of this mystery. Yes, but the... Ep- I couldn't help feeling that perhaps even Miss Damer's theory might prove to be not quite as strong as it first appeared. No, surely not. Uh, well, I, for one, was quite convinced on Monday by you, Sir Charles, uh, that the criminal was Lady Pennyfather, moved by sheer greed to murder her husband. But on Tuesday, when Mrs. Fielder Fleming made her devastating accusation against you... Sense retracted, Mr. Chetwick, sense retracted. uh, Of course. Uh, But at that moment you made it, I felt as certain as I have been of anything that Sir Charles had conceived and carried out that plot, intent on saving his daughter from marriage with Sir Eustace. On Wednesday, I was quite convinced by Mr Bradley that the crime was the work of some discarded mistress and that the intended victim wasn't Sir Eustace at all, but the lady he was due to lunch with. Mm. On Thursday, our president had quite won me over to the view that the plot was the work of a master criminal. In fact, Graham Bendix, whose fiendishly clever plan to murder his wife had succeeded. And finally, as we all know, Last night, Miss Dammers made out an excellent case for believing that Sir Eustace, once assumed to be the victim of this crime, in fact, masterminded it. In that connection, I'd like to mention one point Miss Dammers made. The salesman at Webster's who recognised and even identified Sir Eustace from his photograph. Now, I'm afraid that doesn't seem to me very significant at all. You see... I've discovered Sir Eustace has bought his notepaper from Webster's for years. He's really quite well known there. Mm -hmm. So what we're left with is the typewriter and the copy of Taylor's medical jurisprudence.
9: But you can't possibly get
1: round those. I can certainly suggest an explanation for the typewriter and the tailor, which leaves Sir Eustace quite innocent. You can? How do you explain them, then? Well, to put it one way... That you were right, Mr. President, in thinking of the criminal as extremely able and ingenious. In other words, the typewriter and the tailor were, among a whole lot of other matters... What is the technical term? Rigged.
3: Oh, rigged. I say damn good, Chitterwick. Uh, But can you substantiate that? Oh, yes, I think so.
1: You'll be telling us next you know who did it.
3: Oh, I know that. You know it?
9: Well...
1: Who is it? Out with it. But you've practically told me yourselves. Hmm? Coming last of all, my task has been comparatively simple. All I had to do was to sort out the truth from the false in everybody else's statements. And, well, there was the truth. It's as clear as can be. Don't you think you'd better take us through your sifting process? Of course. Sir Charles was the first to point out the erasure on the piece of Crossman's notepaper. He was right, too, when he suggested that Sir Eustace's impending divorce was really the mainspring of the tragedy. Mm. But I'm afraid he didn't draw the right inference. Lady Pennyfather was not the criminal. <clears throat> Mrs Fielder Fleming contributed the vital information that Sir Eustace wasn't in love with Miss Wildman at all. If he had been, I very much fear it would have been Miss Wildman who met her death instead of Mrs Fendix. (laughs) Good God. That clinches it. Discarded mistress. As for you, Mr Bradley, you reached the truth in almost every particular. Thank you. You saw it was a woman's crime. You deduced outraged feminine feelings underlying
3: the whole affair. Mm. It was really most penetrating. <laughs> In fact, I uh, did everything possible except find the murderer. <laughs> oh, well,
1: that is so, of course. Mm. And then we come to Mr. Sheringham. Don't. Leave me out. Oh, but you were so nearly right. Oh. Then it was all aimed against Mrs. Bendix. Haven't I told you about that? Oh. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm I'm doing this in a very muzzle-headed way. Yes, it's partially true to say the plot was aimed against Mrs. Bendix, but the real position, I think, is that it was aimed against Mrs. Bendix and Sir Eustace jointly. You came very near the truth, Mr. Sheringham, except that you substituted a jealous husband for a jealous rival. (laughs) Very near indeed. I'm glad I was right about something. And Miss Dammer's... Most (laughs) helpful. Although not convincing. Not convincing, but your information about the affair between Mrs Bendix and Sir Eustace was really the foundation stone of the whole business. I
4: didn't see how it could fail to
1: be. The major point of difference between us is a fact I have discovered by dint of some effort today. It is this. Far from being bored with Mrs Bendix, as you postulated, Miss Dammers, Sir Eustace was quite infatuated with her. Far more so than she with him, and that is one of the determining factors in this tragedy. Miss Dammers is, however, quite right on many other points. Taylor's medical jurisprudence was indeed used to plan the crime, but her own copy, now in Sir Eustace's rooms, was planted there by the culprit. She was right also about the method used to lure Mr Bendix to the Rainbow Club, except that he was sent there not to receive the chocolates from Sir Eustace, but simply to witness Sir Eustace receiving the parcel. Mm -hmm. That was all. It was a wicked plot. The idea was to connect the chocolates with Sir Eustace in the mind of the wronged husband. Oh, and while we're on the subject of the chocolates, the other reason they were sent to the club was so that Sir Eustace would be sure to take them with him to the lunch appointment with Mrs Bendix. Mm -hmm. What was not taken into account was that the appointment might be cancelled. And the motive, Mr Chitterwick, Revenge, as far as Sir Eustace is concerned. Jealousy, as regards Mrs Bendix. Oh, dear me, this is very delicate ground. Though she had concealed it successfully from her friends, the lady who planned and carried through this crime had been very much in love with Sir Eustace. She became his mistress a long time ago. Sir Eustace was very much in love with her, too, and although he used to amuse himself with other women, they had agreed that this was all right as long as there was nothing serious. I think it was understood between them that he was to marry her as soon as he could induce his wife to divorce him. But when the divorce was finally arranged, Sir Eustace was in such low financial straits that he found it imperative to marry money instead. The lady was naturally disappointed, but at least she knew Sir Eustace wasn't in love with Miss Wildman. And then something quite unforeseen happened. Sir Eustace not only fell out of love with her, he fell unmistakably in love with Mrs Bendix. Moreover, he succeeded in making her his mistress. Now you see the problem. Sir so Eustace was getting his divorce, and it was on the cards that he would end by marrying Mrs. Bendix, the real beloved. If I may quote the obvious, hell hath no fury like... Can you prove all this, Mr. Chitterwick? Oh, yes, I... Uh, I think so. I'm inclined to doubt it. Hadn't you better continue, Mr. Chitterwick? Uh, yes, oh, yes, I... Uh, so, then this lady formed her terrible decision and made her very clever plan her old right of access to Sir Eustace's rooms enabled her to smuggle in the tailor's medical jurisprudence and to type the letter on his typewriter one day when he was out. It was easy for her, when ringing Mr Bendix, to imitate the sort of voice Mr Lorme might be expected to have.
9: Mr Chiswick, do any of us
1: know this woman? Uh yes. An ex-mistress of Sir Eustace's, eh? Uh, well, yes, but uh, nobody had any idea of it. At one time, they were seen together quite frequently. Then, I understand, they thought it better to pretend to have quarrelled. And they met only in secret.
4: Uh, But where did you get all this from, Mr Chitterwick?
1: I've been talking to Sir Eustace. He's let certain things slip.
4: I doubt if you can prove any of it.
1: Isn't it time you told us this woman's name, Chitterwick? It's very strange, you know, how murderers never will let well alone, isn't it? It happens so often... I'm quite sure I'd never have stumbled on the truth in this case if the murderess hadn't tried to fix the guilt on another person. Why tempt Providence? Oh, well, uh, I'd better clear up the remaining point. It's about the lady's alibi for when the parcel was posted. I think it was an afterthought owing to a piece of luck. I happen to know that this lady has an explorer friend, a somewhat unconventional woman, often away on expeditions. She never stays in London more than a night or two, but I found out she did so immediately before the crime. Uh, This woman, uh, her name, by the way, is Jane Harding. Jane Harding? Alicia, don't you? Yes, I do. Uh, Miss Harding came to London from Paris and stayed for two nights at the Savoy. She then left London for Africa on the morning the chocolates were delivered. Now, I think the murderess had previously hurried to Paris and had asked Miss Harding to post the parcel when she came to London, making sure it would arrive on the morning of Sir Eustace's lunch appointment. Yes, but but where does all this leave us? You haven't said. Oh, Oh. this is very difficult.
4: (laughs) Poor Mr Chitterwick. Mr Preston, I wonder if you would excuse me I'm afraid I have an appointment Oh, uh,
0: well, Yes, Miss Damers, yes, of course
4: <clears throat> I'm so sorry not to be able to stay here to hear the rest of your case, Mr Chetwick but really, no, as I said before I really doubt very much whether you'll be able to prove it I really must leave Goodbye
1: hmm. She's perfectly right, you know I'm quite sure I can't But there isn't the faintest doubt, I'm afraid. Not the faintest.
9: You... You can't mean...
6: Alicia?
5: So that's why Alicia Dammers went to France. That's how she came to meet Lady Pennyfather in Paris. She didn't conceal it, did she? Remember how she proved Lady Pennyfather couldn't have posted that parcel. (sighs) I still can't believe it.
3: Hmm. So, we did have a practising criminologist among us, after all. (laughs) How quite interesting.
0: But now, ladies and gentlemen, what the devil do we
9: do?